Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. to bringing design closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and trainer based in Dublin City, Ireland. Bringing Design Closer is a podcast dedicated on shining the light and the complexities of embedding the designer's mindset within organisations. In this episode, I speak with Raven Kaliana, a puppeteer and human rights activist based in the UK and originally from the US. She studied at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, but what brings us here today is Raven's remarkable story of how she uses puppetry to campaign for public awareness and policy change around child abuse issues. She's written her own autobiographical play called Hooray for Hollywood on surviving and escaping human trafficking as a child, which she has since made into a film. Raven is the founder of Outspiral, an organisation using puppetry to provide training for charities, counsellors, law enforcement and support techniques. She also delivers puppet-based workshops and trauma recovery for survivors and child victims. She facilitates societal healing through performances of her play Love vs Trauma, which follows with a discussion on the personal and social effects of trauma and how we might visualise new possibilities for the future. Now, I would like to point out that this episode contains information that may be triggering for some people and covers off topics such as abuse and the effects of trauma. Let's get straight into the episode. Raven Kaliana, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you doing today? I'm good. Nice to speak with you. Raven, let's start off. How do you describe what you do? Well, I would say that I uh, write and produce plays and films that, that utilize puppetry. And most of them are for adults or for teens. I also create uh, workshops also for mostly adults and teens. And uh, I do a lot of education on trauma recovery and also on human trafficking and child sexual exploitation issues, a lot of awareness raising. Excellent. It's such an interesting topic, and um, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts today of um, understanding trauma and its complexity. So let's start off first, and we'll talk a little bit more around um, how you understand trauma. How would you describe it? Well, Trauma is something that uh, your body perceives as an extreme violation or life-threatening. And uh, in, in animals, if they go through, you know, say if some, uh, a hawk comes after a, a rabbit or something like that, uh, the rabbit will either run or if, it, if we're, or if it's cornered, it may fight back. And if it's uh, if, if that doesn't work, it might go into a, a state called freeze, where it just sort of shuts down and, and pretends to be dead. But with humans, because we are social animals and because we are so dependent on each other for everything in life, you know, our food, our shelter, 
and children even even more so even have fewer choices we will tend more to go into the freeze state than the fight or the flight so for instance a, a child isn't going to fight you know you know physically attack its parents uh, if if its needs aren't being met, um, mm. and it, it it won't you know it won't necessarily run away because if it goes outside and tries to you know if the child tries to live by uh, his or her, herself uh, in the streets it, it will probably die. So mm. uh, so because children are so dependent on on adults for survival, most often they just go into a freeze state. But that's also true in so many social situations as well. Like if if, if someone is being bullied in their workplace, um, they may feel that they don't have any options. They can't like you know they can't like you know punch the person who's 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 you know ridiculing them or sabotaging them. They can't uh, you know they can't like you know run outside in the street or else they you know probably won't be you know allowed to come back. And, uh, you know, so most often the response is to freeze. So people just shut down emotionally. A lot of the sort of uh, physical, there's a lot of physical symptoms that are associated with that. So in humans, the freeze response is associated with a lot of shame, with a lot of post-traumatic stress symptoms uh, mm-hmm. with a lot of different sorts of physical symptoms because we we aren't uh, we're not expressing that that big jolt of adrenaline we're we're just we're it's just sitting in our bodies we're not doing anything with it and so it also leads to a feelings of disempowerment and also a, a lack of vision for the future a lack of hope in the vision in the future and a lack of connection with other people because people when they shut down they start to get this feeling like they're inside of a fish tank or something that's a really common description of how it feels uh when you've been through uh when you've been through trauma and you're experiencing post-traumatic stress you feel like you you can't connect with other people you feel really withdrawn yeah absolutely and i actually in this space of um trauma like it's it's something that i that i actually experienced and something i researched um was when i was living in australia and it was hugely profound but when i i noticed that when i was working with the ngos and some of the ngos were supporting children as young as uh, who'd been through abuse at six months all the way up to adults and you could see that the abuse has has uh, affected their entire life it's it's something they've carried on their shoulders and it affects how they see the world and their ability to connect with other people and the ability to manage their own emotional states. And I remember there was one really um, uh, profound story as regards there was a, a male who had been abused uh, throughout his childhood. And in his adult life, he ended up having two uh, baby girls. He had twins at a very young age, maybe in his early 20s. But because he was abused, he had this whole uh, belief system that, you know, you've been abused, you will abuse. Ooh. And as a result, his... Um, his whole marriage broke down because he was unable to support the family, unable to like be present with the family. Mm. And it cascaded into eventually his, his two girls were then adults. And it was only when he seeked and he sought, um, you know, therapy and, and support for his abuse that he realized that that wasn't true. He just wasn't able to connect because for that fear that he was going to become the abuser, which yeah. is an, an absolute myth. 
like when you look at the statistics that is a myth it's, yes it's, like it's it's something that i often see being misconstrued and misportrayed online and twitter streams and it's like that is not necessarily true true so the next question i want to ask you is about like now that we've we've kind of spoken a little bit more around trauma, how have you seen governments typically address the support of victims who are suffering from um, trauma? Well, <laughs> mostly it mostly the the model that I see is is more uh, pathologizing trauma responses, mm. like medicalizing it instead of. Um, basically shaming the person who has suffered and not looking at the mm. crimes at all. So not look, not holding the criminals responsible in any way, but instead mm. uh, focusing on the survivors, you know, f- you know, physical responses to the effects of the abuse and uh, trying to shame them for that. So, you know, so depression or, uh, you know, maybe they have addictions or maybe they chronically under earn money, you know, or things like that mm. because of low self-esteem. So those are ways that that society and government sort of shame people and say, oh, well, here's some, you know, maybe we can have, you know, give you some benefits or something. But at the same time, there's no uh, what what gets cut in especially in austerity times what gets what's gets cut is any sort of uh therapies you know any kind of free mm. you know free counseling free especially um person centered counseling where the person might yeah. be able to actually just you know, actually heal, like literally heal from yeah. what they've been through instead of like, oh, well, here's some, here's some antidepressants to hide the symptoms instead of yeah. here's some counseling so that you won't have to deal with those symptoms anymore in your life because you can actually mm. heal the, the backlog of emotions, the, the backlog. Um, if, if there's enough feeling of witnessing and processing and sort of replacing the the love and care and tenderness that was you know taken from the person during the you know situation of abuse if that's you know replaced then they mm-hmm. heal and uh, it's it's it is a relatively simple process but uh it's people are most often given drugs um and uh, and or you know behavioral therapies and things like that instead of how about if we just listen how about if we just make some space in our society for people to feel their feelings and how about if we accept that yes if you've been through something terrible you're not going to necessarily feel very good about it and uh, and then on the the other side of that is you know not holding perpetrators to account so it's a, a lot of um, a lot of what we see is that people might go through um, uh, they might have a trauma history, you know, in their childhood, or they might, you know, get into abusive relationships in adulthood because they think, oh, that's that's all I'm worth, you know. Yeah, and absolutely. One of the the things I guess, it's just to, to build on that topic was the stigma and the taboo that goes around abuse, especially child sexual abuse in society. It was one of the the quickest ways for me to, um, to shut a dinner party up by telling people (laughs) that I was researching at the time. Um, Because it was such one of those topics that 
I couldn't turn off from. It was like it was something that I, I was always on. I was always listening and I was always focusing on. Um, but there was this huge taboo around talking about abuse. Yes, yes. And there's a responsibility from society there to really acknowledge its presence in the room. And it was something that I really struggled with that, you know, I'd speak to people in the pub, it would silence them. And they were like, oh, he's mentioned. He's, he's, we're here to he's escape talking. that subject matter. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's just let's just talk about the beer. Um, yes. you know, and I was like, no, no, like, uh, I think this needs to be addressed. Yes. And um, there's, there's stuff there. So I think, you know, how do we get around that? Well, basically, you know, we don't have to escape from reality we have to make mm. reality better. And to do that, we have to face reality and talk about it. So all the silencing, we need to get past that. We need to talk with each other. And, uh, you know, what happens when people start to share about past trauma is you start to get things like the Me Too movement, where people are like, oh, actually, I thought I was all alone. I thought I was the only person who suffered that. And then, oh, actually, here's thousands upon thousands of thousands of people who have suffered the same thing. So, you know, just like in uh, if you want better uh kind of better rights in a workplace you might have to unionize and to get past mm. that you need to talk with other people there but it's the same yeah. time to- you know same thing with people who have suffered abuse is that people need to talk they need to find each other they need to say actually this is unacceptable you know uh, there's no effective response to child sexual abuse like, there's no effective legal response so yeah. I uh, I went to a police conference a few years ago and, and presented there, and it was it was really really fascinating but really disheartening mm. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, oh let me see see if I can remember it's I think that they were um, out of this is in the UK. It, yes, this was in this was in Norfolk. Um, so it was the the Norfolk region Norfolk Regional Conference and. Uh, so they were saying that um, out of the number of, oh, I think they said that only 5% of children who um, reported uh, any kind of sexual abuse to adults, only 5% of them actually get taken to a police station to make a, an actual police okay. report. Yeah. And then out of that 5%, and the, of course, you know, most children aren't going to be talking about it anyway, because trauma shuts down language. So people who suffer trauma, they don't even store the trauma experience the same way you store other types of memory. So it's mm. not stored in a narrative form where you can say, oh, well, I went to the shop and then I didn't look both ways far across the street and then oh here comes a bus you know you you can't say it as an, in a narrative way because what you actually remember yeah. is uh i Pieces. saw the sky and a bird flying and then yeah. i saw you know red and it, you your 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 brain records it as the initial sensory perceptions like the individual senses so smell sight meaning and um sound uh, it all gets recorded in 
in its original form and not in a narrative form. So that's how it comes back as well. And that's how children, children can't, you know, it's very, very difficult for them to articulate it. Yes. To, to put, Mm -hmm. because they don't have any words for that. They, they might say, Oh, I saw a bird. Like, you know, I I, I saw red, you know, they, 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 they can only talk about the, the individual bits and pieces and not the whole of it. So it's hard to make sense of it as an adult. However, in their play, they will reenact it and you can see it in their play. You can see it in their dioramas with their toys. You can see how they behave with other children. They will repeat this and that's how they can tell. And so uh, with um, uh, in terms of the statistics, so, you know, 5% of children who report to adults in their life, only five, you know, 5% of uh, all of the children who report manage to put into words that something's wrong. Only 5% of them actually get into police reports. And out of that 5%, only 7% actually get uh, to court. To court, yes. Yeah. And then uh, it's a even smaller. That I heard before. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's really it's unfortunate. And then when when the um, when the per- if a perpetrator actually uh, gets a, a, a sentence, uh, I think it's only in like twenty four percent or something of the cases they'll actually get a custodial sentence so most of the time it's just sort of like oh you really shouldn't do that maybe here's a fine or something and uh, and most of the time they're just kind of released back into the community without any support without any like you know uh you know nothing around them to help them change their behavior it's just Mm. there's really very few consequences for someone perpetrating against children Totally. And like when you look at the the judicial process and the prosecution process, it's kind of framed in something that was designed 200, 300 years ago in, in many cases. Yes, I, I found a, a really good quote about that. And that is uh, by Judith Herman. And she said that the judicial system is designed to protect men against the greater power of the state, but it not to protect women and children against the greater power of men wow so i thought that might yeah, fit your, totally ex- your experience in australia <laughs> yeah and it was like you know the whole kind of you know the, the, the defense cross-examining a child on the stand and asking them you know stuff that fits with that model of prosecution and like asking them about you know sight you know what did you see and what did you smell and you know what time is it like for a child what time is old, it <laughs> They, they might they even not even be able to tell time. <laughs> they don't even know what time is. Like, you know, my, my little girl, like she wakes up, she's three and a half and she, she's going to go, she'll wake up and she goes, is it dinner time? Oh. And I'm like, no, you, you've just woken up. It's breakfast. <laughs> you know, and like, you know, we're going to have a breakfast now. Like so, so, sometimes she gets confused with, with the time. And like, it's something as basic as that. So asking a child what time of day it was when they don't have those models is just, it's just crazy, crazy kind of a crazy model to work with. Can you give some so, other examples of what what kinds of questions were asked of children on the witness stand? There was, I remember, the wallpaper was one. Like, tell us what what, what the wallpaper was like, <laughs> you know, when when this happened. And they they were, you know, as you said, it's it's very difficult for someone, even for me, like, but for someone who's in that state of freezing or, you know, flight, it's you're not going to remember like the pattern that was on the wallpaper. No, you know, and did you did you feel like 
did you feel like the lawyers were, were bullying the children or what was your impression? I think that's definitely, um, you know, a shared understanding and a shared perspective from, from many people who work in that space um, globally that there is a, a sense that the, the defence are, um, are, are barraging, you know, these, these young children and it needs to change. It's just not fair. And that, that, that model of um, is it, very old school. Yeah. Which brings us into a, a really good, like there's some really great examples of the new way of thinking and a new way of approaching this to, to support those those children who've been through the, that sort of awful scenario and awful time in their life. And you've actually got a really great example of a trauma center in Boston. Yeah. So I, tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, I was I was working on an, um, a documentary and unfortunately it's it's, it, it, it never was finished, sadly, but I, I, I would like to pick up and do a different documentary and just interview the same people <laughs> because it was some fantastic, fantastic, insightful interviews and really inspiring work uh, in mm-hmm. terms of child advocacy. Uh, so there's a, a tr- the trauma center in Boston has a, a, a section that's called the Child Advocacy Center, and they've got um, this sort of, you know, gentle playroom, fun colors on the wall, and, you know, very, you know, sweet people leading the, the families in. And and then uh, when the, uh, what they'll do is they've designed a room with a, with a two-way mirror mm-hmm. so that the... Uh, the child can sit with a big pad of paper, toys all around, crayons, paints, finger paints, you know, whatever. To um, and one interviewer who is trained in child sensitivity to uh, um, interview the child. And the way it works is that the interviewer has a little headset on, and on the other side of the two-way mirror are police you know, um, medical professionals, lawyers, social workers, everybody who's going to be need to be involved in the case. So in that way, the child can just tell their story once to one person in a safe feeling environment. They can stop any time, they can take a break. You know, it, 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 there isn't any um, you know, pressure or bullying. It's it's just someone who's, you know, very gentle. You know, there, I think there's even like a sand tray. So the child can make little dioramas to actually show the, you know, show what, what happened to them instead of actually using words if words are too hard. And in that way, uh, everyone who's involved in the case, you know, can ask the questions uh, through the interviewer and then the interviewer interprets it in, in a way that's non-threatening to the child. And in that way they videotape the whole thing and then they can use that whole, uh, that whole session, the whole interview session. uh, They can use that in, in the court in place of the child actually going to the court. Yeah. Which is amazing. Um, They're trying to do that in New South Wales and Australia. Um, They they were trialing when I was leaving. And um, it's just, you know, it saves the the child and the family that whole traumatic um, experience of having to go to court and just going to court alone to be in the same room as, um, you know, the the defendant or, you know, the the person who could Yes, imagine that. Imagine that as a child. 
yeah you're, you're putting them back in in the same space and like they, they do remote witness rooms in australia i don't know if they do that in in america or the uk i'm, I'm pretty sure they do in the uk but um too often the the remote rooms are in the courthouse oh. so so i've seen instances where you know i know where the the rooms were in in this court courthouse and uh, you know is sitting behind the the parent who committed or you know reportedly committed the the crime and whenever this, the, the the judge, the magistrate, called time on on the session, they the child had been given a piece of paper to to look at a photo, and at the end of the day, they they said, okay, we just need to get the paper back, and within about twenty seconds, the paper was back in the courtroom. So now you know Aww. the time it took for the piece of paper to get from A to B is twenty seconds. You know that the child is around somewhere, and you could see the parent's head swiveling Aww, around, no. and I'm like. Oh man, this is just like so. The the whole system, you know, is is broken, and yeah. it's 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 very very difficult. I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but let's let's talk a little bit more around around your story, Raven. Like you've got a really interesting um, how you managed to get to this point uh, in your career. Well, I'm I'm interested both in uh, education on trauma recovery, and also I'm interested in puppetry as well. Um, but um, the reason I do so much public education work is uh, that I was I was trafficked uh, as a child by my parents. It was uh, they were involved with a, a pedophile ring in my neighborhood, and um, so uh, you know just you know horrible horrible stuff happened when I was a child. Like loads of um, like I was trafficked to different uh, studios around the U.S. You know. Some of them were nearby. Some of them were like, you know, thousands of miles away. Some of them were actually across international borders. And that was for uh, the production of um, child sexual exploitation materials. So, you know, other people call it, you know, used to call it child pornography, if you don't, if you haven't heard that term. Mm. But child sexual exploitation materials kind of tells it you know, makes it a little clearer what that actually is. Absolutely. These are not yeah. actors. These are actually, it's actually just a like crime scene footage of children being sexually assaulted and sometimes tortured, sometimes murdered. It's very, very serious crimes. And um, so um, I, I escaped when I was um, basically, I mean, my, my, um, because my, my parents were involved, they were kind of like middle class ish. So, uh, they wanted me to, uh, get, you know, high marks in school to sort of cover for them. And, you know, so people wouldn't ask questions like, oh, well, she's doing well in school. There couldn't possibly be anything wrong at home. I guess we'll just ignore those bruises all over her body, you know? So people, you know, wouldn't inquire because I was doing well academically. Um, but, Fortunately, that also ended up being to my benefit as well, because a, a teacher, you know, felt, you know, invested in me and cared about me and was worried about me and did ask me about, you know, what was happening at home. And uh, when I told her, she was really scared for me. And uh, she actually helped me make a plan to try to stabilize this very chaotic and life-threatening situation that I was going through at home and also like a long-term plan just to get away from my parents mm. and their whole, you know, crime associates, you know, it was quite a big organized crime network yeah. that they were involved with. So, yeah. um, so basically, um, the, the plan was to negotiate with my teachers about my 
my absences because my my marks were high, but I was losing a lot of hours at school because of injuries or because I was being taken out of state by my father, drugged and taken away. So uh, staying in school was kind of how I managed to get on to university. And at university, I kind of created a new support system for myself. Yeah. And uh, that enabled me enough kind of, um, you know, because it sort of replaced the, uh, the 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 fake support system I had the support system that wasn't a support system you know my my family with one that was actually real and actually people who cared about me and you know wanted wanted me to have a good future and you know um, wanted to treat me well mm. and uh, so I was able to uh, cut off contact with my abusers and uh, after a lot of I mean they continued to harass me for a few years and it took a while you know until I was actually completely safe from them but um it it definitely made a big difference to in my life and in terms of my my safety and sense of well-being to actually you know not not be in danger anymore yeah I can imagine it's yes. it's it's an, an, an incredible story yes and and one thing that was great is that I actually found a lot of other survivors who were interested in healing and not interested in this whole, mm -hmm. you know, met, you know, um, pathologizing survivors, but actually interested in actually working with the, the trauma material, processing it, letting it go, and and also uh, looking at society, what you know, what's happening in society, and how can we change it. So they were friends who were interested in activism work. So that was quite inspiring and quite an early influence for me. It's such an incredibly shocking story, Raven, and one where you've shown so much resilience. So tell me, how did puppetry come into your life and how did you discover its power as a support tool? So after, after quite, um, I mean, I was at university, I, I, I earned a degree um, and uh, after university, I moved to San Francisco and got hired at a at a company that makes hand puppets and at that wow. yeah i know it was fantastic my life changed yeah. in you know exponentially for the better the day i walked in their, their door it was really amazing but um but actually by, by that point i was actually you know instead of my because i'd gone through this healing process where i wasn't running away from my pain but actually um witnessing my pain and healing my pain then I actually my 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 baseline mood from day to day instead of being all you know ex, you know extremely you know uncomfortable and you know afraid or upset or you know, it 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 transformed into being mostly happiness mostly joy mostly satisfaction curiosity and uh, so you know getting hired at Folkmanis Puppets was a, a you know a great you know, sort of juncture for that, because I'd, I was in quite a good place in my life when I when I was first hired by them. And it was kind of like a bit of a replacement family for me. Like I just I just love them so much. I can't express how much I love those people. And um, and they they had they really took very good care of their employees, like very. Uh, you know, it was like profit sharing set up and, um, uh, you know, people just never wanted to leave there. The same people 
that were there when I was hired <laughs> in the 90s are still there today. Wow, <laughs> you know, people just don't want to leave. They, they really are a family. Yeah, they're, and it is run by a family, but actually the people kind of, the, the people who've been hired there, they just never want to leave. So they have become family to each other as well. It's a, a remarkable place. And uh, the puppetry, uh, I don't know how I would say, the puppetry community globally tends to be quite an amazing thing as well. People really look out for each other and really care about each other and like, you know, oh, hey, I got offered this work, but I can't do it because I'll be out of town. Maybe you would like to do this. <laughs> like, what other industry does that happen in? And people, people will... Uh, you know, like kind of like, oh, here's a puppet festival, but you'd like to go, but where will you stay? Like, oh, you can stay at this puppeteer's studio. Oh, you can t- stay at this puppeteer's home. You know, people will open their homes to, to strangers who are also puppeteers. And it's just like an amazing community where people really actually nurture each other and care about yeah. each other and, you know, mentor each other. It's It's really wonderful. And so... You know, at Folk Modest Puppets, I, I got the idea while I was working there. I mean, because I also saw how much adults love puppets. And uh, and also, we, we uh, Folk Modest Puppets donates a lot of puppets to charity. Like, for instance, they would donate them to uh, refugee camps where, you know, the kids are, you know, may have lost their parents and you know, whole families. And so the puppets, you know, really helped the kids kind of come back into the present a bit. And so it was just so inspiring to see the, the potential for puppetry. And so I got the idea, oh, right. I feel like words, just words aren't the right medium for my story. I feel like if I created a show using puppets, then it would be easier for me to, to, to work with that material because I, I mm. wanted to use my story for uh, public education work. And, um, and then it would also be much easier for audiences as well to be able to engage with that subject matter. Because, you know, if you see, uh, you know, if you see an actor on a stage, there's already this sort of kind of cynicism comes down, you know, you switch into this kind of intellectual mode when you see an actor like, oh, do they have to hire an actor who's in their 30s to play someone who's 16 or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's all, all this kind of initial like, oh, God. you know, like we've seen it all before. So, but puppets we haven't seen. So it turned out to be a very, very good medium for for doing Mm. that and uh, in 2007 I moved to England and uh, got my master's at at, um, Central School of Speech and Drama and that was where I put together my show Hooray for Hollywood and it was it was an amazing amazing thing Um, I I think I think my my poor tutors (laughs) I don't know what they thought (laughs) at first they they were like don't do that (laughs) I mean, some of them, you know, I think because they, they didn't realize it was my own life story. So they were just so afraid that I was, you know, have you done your research on this subject? They're like, oh, we have done lots of research. <laughs> but I think... I was going to say, what is, what is it you think um, the power of puppetry is as regards like... Well, it is like this one step removed. It's, it's the same as when you're a child 
you've gone through something terrible in your day and then you work it out with your toys. So it's like you can, uh, you know, use the dinosaur toy and the truck toy. You know, they, 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 the, the, the dinosaur got run over by the truck during on the playground today. But now the dinosaur is going to fight back and the dinosaur is going to, you know, bite, bite the truck, you know. So it's like the, the kids can work out the dynamics that have happened to them in the day. They work it out through their play. You know, I think, I think yeah. adults do that mostly in their dreams as well. Like it's something, a way you sort of work out, you know, what's happened to you. But most of us don't even remember our dreams. But children actually do it in three dimensions. You know, they you they but but adults were not really given very much um, opportunity. Or you know, if we if we are doing something that's three dimensional, sometimes it's ridiculed. You know, like there isn't like you know like oh you know, like a, a play cafe for adults. If somebody wants to do that, I'm for it. Yeah, there's something in it. But it's the, it I, I'll go. I'll be the first one there. But um, looking at storytelling, you know, the, the, by putting a puppet into the sort of situation, you're you're, sh- you're shifting the focus onto another thing. Yes. And it's it's easier to to convey the story without yes. getting too caught up in the complexity of the emotions that are attached to the story. It's and a way to sort I've, of explore it in a tentative way where you're like, oh, this is just pretend, you know, you can start yeah. out, this is just pretend and sort of, you can kind of work up to it, you know, it doesn't have to be this, you know, shocking, horrible thing, you can kind of, you can slowly ease into it because you're, you know, you're, you're playing with a thing that you know is, is inanimate and yet your own mind is bringing it to life as you're, yeah. you're being invited to play. But I, w- I say mm. it's like adults are kind of discouraged from using their imagination. I mean, even, you know, even during teenagehood, it seems like, you know, oh, you know, we're, we're so discouraged from playing. But, you know, that is how humans actually learn to do things differently and how they start to envision a different way forward. And so I think puppets are a really powerful medium. Yeah, I know Adam Lawrence and Marcus Hormes um, from Workplay Experience in Germany. They run a fantastic um, workshop facilitation course around theatrical um, sort of play out experiences for for designers to mm. take them out of that comfort zone. And, you know, I think puppetry is, is, is an extension of that type of thinking. Um, have you seen puppetry, um, you know, being used potentially in the, uh, the the examination process for for children as they go to to deliver their evidence in terms of you know co facilitation well, of the story through puppetry. I mean, I didn't see that. At, I didn't see that specifically at the trauma center in Boston, mm. and that was kind of my my only experience. You know, directly dealing with you know a a, a child advocacy center like that. Um, but a, a lot of uh, play therapists. You know, that's kind of a standard is to have some puppets in the room because the the kids find it much easier to, you know, for instance, even just tell something to a puppet than to a, to an adult, you know, and then they, you know, they could also, you know, use the, the cuddle with the puppet. You know, it's like it's a comfort as they're talking about something that's scary. And then also they can... Um, you know, work out the different dynamics, like, you know, the, you know, here's the rooster and here's the lion. And, you know, it's like, you know, one of them represents them, one of them represents whoever has hurt them. And they can, they can kind of, 
you know, work out uh, what the dynamic is and actually demonstrate it to, mm. to the counselor, but without them necessarily yeah. being having, without the child being necessarily consciously aware that that's what they're showing to the counselor. Yeah. But anybody who's yeah. trained in that, you know, anybody who's trained in play therapy can definitely, you know, see what the dynamics are in, in the situation that is, you know, that is bothering the child. Yeah. Raven, we're coming towards the end of um, the episode. It's It's been really, really um, amazing to, to speak with you and you know, for you to share your story as well. If people want to reach out to you and um, follow you, like how might they be able to get in touch and do that? Well, uh, uh, right now I'm touring a new show that's called Love Versus Trauma. And what I do is I... Uh, follow it with a post-show discussion that is on trauma. And I am bringing that around to the UK. People can uh, find uh, can find me on my website, and that's just ravencaliana.com. Maybe you can yeah. <laughs> spell it I'll, out somewhere. It, <laughs> so I have a yeah, funny I'll name. Yeah, put a link in the show notes. Yes. And, um, and, uh, and basically, uh, I'm, I'm trying to invite people to visualize a different future. So uh, in the same way that, uh, uh, you know, a child has, a traumatized child has trouble visualizing their own future, adults Mm -hmm. have that as well. So if anybody, even if people don't realize that so many things are traumatic, like, you know, verbal abuse, somebody called you Mm -hmm. stupid the whole time you're growing up or was never encouraging, anything that denies your, your inner self that's traumatic. If anything that feels like annihilation of who you are inside is traumatic. And I think that is a universal experience. And I think that if we can uh, work towards uh, helping people visualize a future that works better, um, I think that making spaces for those conversations can really help us as a species going forward again raven it was fantastic to speak with you today thank you so much all right thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can join the slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world or join the hate city newsletter where you can win books and get updates Subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to any of our other podcasts such as Getting Started in Design, Bringing Design Closer with myself, Jerry Scullion, or Power of Ten with Andy Palane, or Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Prod Pod with Adrian Tan, and Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook. Thanks for listening and see you next time.